Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. We have a terrific and action-packed episode for you this week with a lot of issues to cover. Of course, we'll be talking about Israel and the war in Ukraine, with Israel trying to play a very delicate balancing act internationally. Israel and Turkey, with the visit this week of Israeli President Isaac Herzog to Ankara. And finally, a status update about Israel and the Palestinians. To help us out, we have with us again Israel Policy Forum's very own policy director, Michael Koplow, as well as Shira Efron, Israel Policy Forum's new director of research. Like everyone else around the world, Israelis have been gripped by the ongoing tragedy in Ukraine. Let's get into how things look from Israel. Hi, Michael. Hi, Shira. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Neri. Hi, Neri. Hi, Michael. Hi, Shira. So thank you for joining us today. Uh, There's a lot to get into, but I think we have to start with Ukraine. Uh, I don't think any of us could have expected when this uh, terrible war began, what, almost two weeks ago, and we're recording this on Wednesday, uh, that Israel would become part of the story due to Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's shuttle diplomacy. Uh, Israel is not a central player, but it has become a player in this ongoing saga. Um, It seems like we just can't help ourselves sometimes. But I wanted to start here with the big picture and then kind of work our way down. Um, As we all know, Israel, even before the war started, tried to uh, walk this tightrope, dance through the raindrops, balancing act, you know, anyone can choose their own expression, between Russia and the West. Uh, Now that we're two weeks in, how do we feel about this balancing act? There has been some criticism from some quarters uh, that Israel should take a a stronger moral stance uh, against Russia. So, Michael, let's start there. How do you feel about uh, Israel playing this mediator role and uh, this go-between role between Russia and the West? I don't think that Bennett going to Putin and trying, or allegedly trying to mediate has anything to do with actual mediation. I, I think it's the best idea that Bennett has to continue the dance between the raindrops. You know, to, to be a successful mediator, first of all, you, there needs to be some sort of signal that mediation can even work. And there are some reports this morning that Russia and Ukraine are maybe moving closer together in terms of a deal that both sides can accept. But I'm not sure that was the case over the weekend when Bennett went over there. And Israel also isn't exactly in a position to really mediate this, given that there's not much Israel can add. You know, you think about, for instance, the United States mediating between anyone, but, you know, let's say between Israel and the Palestinians, it's because the U.S. actually has real sway with both and has things that can throw in to influence a deal and and has uh, ways that it can move an agreement forward that will benefit both sides. I just don't see Israel being in that position. The fact that Israel has the ability to talk to Russia and the ability to talk to Ukraine is nice, but it doesn't mean that Israel is really in a position to successfully end this thing. And so I think this is Bennett still trying to not have to choose a side, because obviously if you say you're mediating between the two sides, you don't have to choose. And if I were Bennett, I would be wary of 
being used by Putin. You know, I, I keep on thinking about um, the kind of unfortunate in hindsight images of John Kerry with Bashar al-Assad, you know, in an effort to kind of sway him. Um, and, you know, that turned out to, of course, not work. And um, I, I do worry about Bennett now being put in a situation where it's going to look a bit embarrassing for him down the road. Interesting. Shira, what do you think about Israel's balancing act? Well, so I, I agree with Michael about the chances of success, although, of course, I hope we're both wrong. And I hope that if Israel um, and Bennett, if they are able to provide that ladder, that if Putin is seeking a ladder and really no one knows, seeking a ladder <laughs> to come climb down and, and de-escalate, um, that would be terrific. question is if really it has anything to do with Israel. That's a big question. But I think, you know, we should go back to the balancing act where it started. And this was actually when Michael and David and Mary, we're all um, in Israel, we'll talk about it later, uh, going about interviews with Israeli officials and analysts and Palestinians also, mostly focusing on the Middle East and Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But remember, we spoke with some Israelis and they were really praising Israel's balancing act and the fact that Israel was one of the one, the last or one of the last countries to um, order its citizens to leave and coming out with a very vanilla statement on uh, standing with Ukraine, but not mentioning the aggressor, the aggressor until now, uh, on one side at least. And um, and and you know we 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 actually voiced concern about this. We said you know at the end of the day, it's it's hard not to pick side here, and it always comes down to Israel has interests that other countries don't understand. And I think at the end of the day, foreign policy is always a balance of right your interests and your values. And it's difficult. It's true that Israel has de facto a border with Russia, but it's not the only country in the world. Um, it's true that Israel needs to maintain its freedom of action in Syria. Um, and I understand a delicate balance. And it's true that there's a large you know, Jewish population that Israel's concerned about in Ukraine and Russia. I mean, the estimates are on, only on Ukraine. We're talking about between 100,000 to 300,000. That's what we're talking about. But at the same time, <laughs> You think of a country like Israel, the history of the Jews, maybe uh, a stronger um, ethical statement and stance um, are are um, are needed. And I think this is where the criticism has been on. So it's 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 interesting to see how uh, how this all plays out. And you know, here we have this interesting game of Bennett being a bad cop, right? Not not sort of a bad cop, but I'm like going to be the balancer and I'm not picking sides. And right. and with uh, Yair Lapid speaking about more of the values and taking the position of, oh, I'm standing with Ukraine and then also in the UN. But but until to what extent can Israel continue with this? And Michael used my word, you know, and there's always the concern of like, are you being played by Putin? Um, and we have to wait and see. But uh, the good thing, I think, for Israel in that regard is that it does everything in coordination, right, with the U.S., with the French, with Germany. So it's not something that Israel does without anyone's blessing. Um, so it seems there, there's some sort of, maybe not hope, but there's 
acceptance of what Israel is doing at the moment. Um, and maybe it's welcomed by many others, except for, of course, uh, Likud uh, members and voters that don't want to see uh, Bennett rising yes. to the position of a global leader like Netanyahu was. How dare, how dare any other Israeli politician meet with foreign leaders? Exactly. Uh, we, we were told for years that Netanyahu was a league apart. Exactly. Uh, but apparently the Israeli prime minister is bigger than any one person. Um, I'm going to take the minority opinion uh, on this podcast, and I'm going to say that I like how the Israeli government has handled uh, the Ukraine crisis and the Ukraine war. Um, I think they were put into a tight position uh, exactly because of those interests that you mentioned, Shira, the uh, the border with with Russia in Syria and this deconfliction mechanism, which uh, Israeli officials insist is is crucial in order to continue bombing Iranian targets inside Syria. Uh, so they name-check uh, the deconfliction me- mechanism with Russia as, as uh, a, a strategic interest of the highest order for Israel, uh, as well as the large Jewish community, uh, primarily in Ukraine, and the need, perhaps in future, to uh, evacuate that community under under Russian fire. So in terms of Israeli interests, that's where they lie. And in terms of uh, Bennett. Uh, doing his best Henry Kissinger impersonation with his shuttle diplomacy. Uh, look, I don't think anybody expects Bennett to actually end the war uh, or even help end the war. Uh, I think we're probably far off from that. But it is interesting to my mind that when these conversations with Putin and Zelensky in Ukraine and, um, and uh, the German chancellor and the French president started last week, uh, it seemed like a one-off, but they've continued. They've continued uh, up to and including yesterday when Bennett and Putin and Bennett and Zelensky spoke again. So in, in other words, uh, even if we don't see the value um, in Bennett's mediation efforts, I think the other parties do. Now, I think we can get into the question of what value these various parties see in it. Right. I think I think the concern about Putin playing Bennett for his own PR purposes, trying to project this image as being a reasonable leader on the world stage when we've seen his actions over the past two weeks, it's uh, highly unreasonable to put it mildly. Um, but in terms of uh, kind of Bennett uh, meeting with Putin and relaying his impressions back to Zelensky in the West, um, and also these Western leaders uh, actually conferring with Bennett. Um, and in, in, including Zelensky. So I, I don't know, I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand. Israeli officials, uh, you know, as you both know, uh, insist that there is real substance behind these mediation efforts, uh, but it remains to be seen whether, um, whether they actually help perhaps end the war. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm being too, too optimistic. Neri, do you think that the deconfliction mechanism with Russia is actually at risk? If Israel weighs in more heavily on the side of Ukraine and, you know, by proxy of the United States, and I don't see a scenario in which Russia actually wants to tangle with Israel and Syria. And it's not as if it's not as if Russia sees it as against Russian interests for the Israelis to keep on targeting Iran's presence in Syria or Iranian weapons shipments. Like the, the notion, the notion that if Israel speaks up too loudly. Putin is going to start shooting down Israeli F-16s. I, I just, I don't buy it. So I was wondering the same thing. 
And I had my own, shall we say, concerns about the real value of this deconfliction mechanism, which we should remind our listeners uh, was set up in 2015 after the Russians intervened on behalf of the Assad regime uh, during the civil war and really helped Assad win the civil war in very brutal fashion. So Israel and Russia have had this deconfliction mechanism. I've written about it. You know, there are Israeli Air Force officers sitting in Tel Aviv communicating with Russian officers sitting in uh, an airbase in, in Syria after they commandeered a, a Syrian airbase. Uh, and the Israelis give the Russians advance warning every time the Israelis go and, and bomb something inside Syria. Now, in terms of the value of this mechanism, uh, I spoke to somebody yesterday, Tuesday, uh, someone who we all know and respect, Amos Harel, uh, and I quoted him in an article that, that should be coming out tomorrow. Uh, he says that if Putin feels like he's being pressed into a corner internationally due to Ukraine, uh, that he may take various unorthodox positions and stances and actions, one of which could be uh, terminating this deconfliction mechanism and actually shooting at Israeli planes. Now, again, it's a hypothetical, but we can sketch out a scenario where there's no deconfliction, there's no essentially dialogue between the Israeli military and the Russian military in Syria. And I don't know, the Russians shoot at an Israeli plane, maybe they take down an Israeli plane, and then what is the Israeli response? Right? You're not gonna you're not gonna start firing at Russian soldiers inside Syria. So I, I do actually take the deconfliction mechanism uh quite seriously. You know, it is that enough to to stop Israel from taking a clearer moral stance, I think uh, that's for others to decide. I'm not saying it's not important. What I'm, mm -hmm. what I'm more questioning is whether Russia would end it, even if Israel were to take a stronger pro-Ukrainian position. Right. I just want to add to that, to what Michael's saying. Like, I, I think that what this um, war showed, that if Putin says something, we actually need to take him for his word. <laughs> so the, I wouldn't to the most like extreme To the most exactly. extreme scenario. So I wouldn't test him. That's correct. But there's also like short term and long term, right? What if Israel wouldn't risk it? If Russia, um, and it's all theoretical, right? Like if, if Israel comes out with a stance that Russian says, oh, we're not answering your phone calls now. So what if Israel doesn't strike in Syria for two weeks? What's going to happen? You know, this is also something we need to think about. It's not right away. Israel says something and automatically Israeli F-16s are down. Um uh, there's there's there are a lot of things that have to happen, and I think Israel is extremely extremely cautious here, and it's good to be cautious. It's good to be cautious, but but in this balance, we'll see how long this plays out because it's not clear to me that that Russian interests are also um, its people coming in, you know, uh, coffins back to Russia when there's uh, also when they're busy in, on another front. So it's not in their interest to to. to you know, to, to end the deconfliction mechanism with Israel, definitely not um, in the long run. I think uh, an interesting indication is what the Russians at least said over the weekend about the Iran nuclear deal, where it, it was looking like a deal was close and, and still remains close. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, the Russians uh, raised several reservations. The thinking by analysts being that perhaps Russia is getting cold feet about the, the value of a renewed Iran nuclear deal. Uh, you know, non-proliferation in the Middle East is one thing, but Iran coming back online in terms of exporting oil is another. And that if the Russians actually view 
their situation as almost existential in terms of the Putin regime due to the Ukraine war. Um, I don't know. Their, their concerns about Iran possibly getting a nuclear deal or a nuclear weapon, rather, uh, goes down just in terms of its uh, uh, priorities for Russia. And you don't want to think if Israel had any interest in that, sort of like <laughs> trying derailing, uh, reaching, you know, going back to the JCPOA. Look, I think I think the Ukraine war, uh, it's been going on now for almost two weeks. I think it's uh, definitely reshuffled the international deck. You know, we, we, we now see Washington going to Venezuela and and offering, I guess, the removal of sanctions if Venezuela starts pumping, pumping oil again. It's interesting. Um, we should also mention, by the way, that the U.S. Uh, has come out in support of Bennett's mediation efforts, which, again, wasn't a given last week when this started. There was concern in some quarters that this would piss off Washington. Uh, but Secretary of State Blinken met with Lapid on Monday in Latvia, and he uh, expressed support for the Israeli efforts. Uh, I think the White House spokeswoman uh, also indicated the same. So in terms of concerns about the fallout of Bennett's efforts, um, that that hasn't come to, to fruition yet, and I stressed yet. Agree, agree. Okay, I, I, again, I'm, I'm taking the minority opinion, uh, but, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't like, uh, like I think Michael said, uh, the, the concern should be, especially in Jerusalem, that Bennett is being played by Putin. But Neri, I sorry, I just it's true. We're not we're not arguing about the cautious. I I also said it, it's good that these efforts are welcomed by international leaders. It's all okay. But you know, there's just a bigger question Israel's is concerned about the Jews of Ukraine and the Jews of Russia. What about the the other 2 million people that are refugees now, right? This is this is mm. where it comes down. You know, the, a lot of the criticism has been about Israel and how isolationist it's been, how self-centered it's been. You, you, you know, you and I live here in Israel and I returned how, yesterday how from a flight and I'm, I'm sitting there in Ben Gurion Airport and you see those people trying to get into the country and they're being asked if they have like a, a great, 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 great father, grandfather who's Jewish and then they can mm -hmm. get in and if not, they can't and they're asking to deposit loads, tons of money to make sure that they leave at the end of the day and you know, so I think it all comes with a bigger context, right? Yeah, it's true that Israel is concerned about all these things, and different countries have different interests vis-a-vis -vis Russia, right? Think about the European Union that depends 30% of its, like, uh, natural Energy. gas supplies is from the mm -hmm. EU, right? Like, people are going to be in the dark there. They're not going to have heat heating. Everyone has interest, and I think this is where some of the criticism, at least Michael, I don't know, I'm speaking on your behalf, speaking about, like, where do we elevate the values, yeah, and I'll, and I'll note, and, and I'm going to write about this for my column tomorrow, you know, Zelensky, Zelensky's rhetoric, where he's been just doubling down on this analogy between what Ukraine is facing now and what Jews faced in the Holocaust, is intended to play on on that exact, that exact angle, Shira, that, that you bring up, right? This idea that of all people, how is it that Israelis can turn away Ukrainians, whether they're Jewish or not? Uh, given the Jewish historical experience in the 20th century. And we should, I just want to say that there is uh, criticism by the Israeli public on this policy. So it's not like how Israelis, right? There's an Israeli Minister of Interior, Ayala Shaked, that is guiding this whole thing. And she's asking good questions. Where are we going to put them? Where are they going to work? There's a housing crisis, but Israel's not the only country facing these issues. And when you have refugees escaping their home <laughs> because they're being bombarded, 
by uh, Russia, you know, you don't ask these questions. You take them in and then you ask the questions, uh, which is what a lot of other countries are doing. And and I think, you know, there's criticism also by the Israeli public um, on, on the way uh, with which Israel dis- is handling this. It's interesting. We should note that I think there was a poll that came out today by our friends at the Israel Democracy Institute uh, that I think 60% of Israelis supported uh, Israel's cautious approach to the Ukraine war. Uh, I think there was a poll that came out on Sunday by Channel 13, uh, also showed support for Bennett uh, going and meeting with with Putin and uh, playing a diplomatic role. So I think I think the public understands that the balancing act is necessary. Um, I think the the criticism has come from certain, uh, shall we say, pundit quarters. Um, but I'm curious, Michael. What is the mood back in America at at the position Israel has has taken? Is there is there understanding of what Bennett is trying to do, or is there more criticism of Bennett's lack of lack of a real public stance, or even mentioning the word Russia in his public statements? There, there's there's both. I think people understand what is at stake for Israel, and and particularly given the Russian presence in Syria, you know, every, everybody everybody is well aware of that, uh, that variable, but you definitely see frustration. You know, you sense it from Democrats uh, and, you know, Lindsey Graham, who rarely criticizes the Israelis, was pretty critical a couple of weeks ago on uh, Israel's, uh, Israel's blocking um, some defensive weapon systems to be transferred to Ukraine. So I think I don't think that there's there's one position. You know, if you're if you're someone like Lindsey Graham, who is uh, a real Russia hawk, um, then you know even even though you're a Republican, Republicans are rarely critical of of, of Israel these days. You know, um, you see criticism, and among Democrats, you know, generally there is going to be criticism along the lines of what morality and ethics and human rights would dictate. So. I don't think that Israel is, is anywhere close to a crisis by any means in terms of its relations with Washington, either the administration or Congress, but there's definitely some grumbling. Okay. As always. That's good to know. <laughs> As always. Um, but, but listen, uh, you know, when, when you see, when you see it, as Nari pointed out before, when you see the U.S. gearing up to drop sanctions on Venezuela, um, you know, or to float the idea of, uh, of getting an Iran deal done even quicker so that you can purchase oil from Iran all to isolate Russia. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, this is, this is kind of like world war, world war two land again. Um, and the notion that everybody has to mobilize against this one great threat is something that is very strong within the context of American history and American foreign policy. And um, I think that for all of the, you know, we all understand here the different interests and pressures on Israel and you know why it wants to um, why it wants to remain as neutral as possible here, but when push comes to shove, Israel's got to go with the United States if it wants to maintain its long-term standing. Uh, and the U.S. certainly hasn't pressured the Israelis a whole lot yet on that front. But the longer this goes on, uh, I think that uh, the pressure on Israel is going to increase. And you know, at that point, Israel's going to have a what what what. What shouldn't be a tough decision, but what probably will be a tough decision to make. Yeah, to contradict uh, what I said over the past 20 minutes, 
I do I do think <laughs> I do think that that that's absolutely right, Michael. That if in a week or two weeks or however long this awful war will go on for, uh, and the bloodshed and the toll on the Ukrainian side rises, right? And let's say Putin goes in and starts bombing Kiev, um, at a certain point Israel's position will become untenable. That you can't, as the Israeli Prime Minister, just say, okay, I'm playing a mediating role while uh, a European capital is being burned to the ground. And, and just one last point, because you know, I know we've got other things to talk about, but I, I absolutely would not downplay or discount the role of Zelensky himself. You know, you see countries in this in these situations and people have sympathy and um, that's fine. But Zelensky has done such a masterful job in terms of the PR and the way he presents himself. You know, it's getting to the point where he's going to be seen around the world, or at least in the West, as, you know, this unparalleled heroic figure. Um, and anytime you're putting yourself either in opposition to or, or even kind of uh, being being part of on someone like that, uh, it's going to cause problems in the long term. And by the way, a very popular Jewish leader. Yes. Yes. Shouldn't be discounted either. Um, okay. So we're going to move on. Uh, unfortunately, like I said, this uh, this war will probably be with us for for some time longer. But we have other news, Israel-related, happening today. Uh, as I speak, as we speak, uh, Israeli President Isaac Herzog is in Turkey uh, today and tomorrow for high-level talks with Turkish President Erdogan and other Turkish officials. Uh, President Herzog said this morning before he flew out from Ben Gurion Airport, and I quote, Israel and Turkey have certainly known ups and downs and not-so-simple moments in recent years, but we shall try to restart our relations and build them in a measured and cautious manner. Uh, just a reminder, we had a terrific podcast last month with Michael and Galia Lindenstrauss. We took a deep dive on Israel-Turkey relations uh, right from the very beginning up till the present moment. So if you're really curious about the history of Israel-Turkish relations, go back and listen to that podcast. Uh, but Michael, lay out for us quickly why Herzog is making this trip now and why he uh, is trying and feels the need to, as he says, restart Israel-Turkey relations. Turkey is trying very hard to reposition itself within the entire region. It's not only with Israel, it's with UAE, it's with Saudi Arabia, uh, a bit less successfully uh, with Egypt. Uh, effectively, Turkish foreign policy, if you look back over the past decade, has been a series of, of losses and Turkey finds itself being more and more isolated and the Turkish economy has been tanking. And so Erdogan has shifted course and he's trying to repair relationships that he broke. And one of those prominent ones is Israel. And Erdogan looks at the Israeli economy. He looks at all of the positive publicity that has come to the UAE and Bahrain and Morocco from the Abraham Accords and from normalization. And uh, even the way that uh, Egypt has um, kind of upped its standing, certainly in Washington, by being more helpful on Gaza and, and presenting a better relationship with Israel. And Erdogan wants in. Um, for his economy, for for his foreign policy, for his electoral prospects, for Turkey status in Washington. And so he has made this a priority. And from the Israeli perspective, you may as well try to take advantage and, and see if Erdogan is serious. You know, there have obviously been uh, efforts at this in the past. 
that kind of went nowhere. Um, but at this point, Turkey is going to have to give a lot more than Israel will. You know, Turkey Turkey is sort of standing there begging the Israelis to to play ball, and so there's no reason for Herzog not to travel to Ankara and meet with Erdogan and try to see if he's serious and you know how Israel can benefit. Maybe I'll just you know I'll add to that. I think. It's, 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 you, you had this podcast with uh, Michael and Gali, so I won't go into it, but right, Turkey had at one point, 15 years ago or so, had this policy of like, we will have zero problems with our neighbors. And then <laughs> they turned into <laughs> thousands of problems with all our neighbors. So Michael is exactly correct that this trying to normalize ties with Israel has come as part of a much bigger effort. Um, and in Turkey, they're trying to spin as, as if, you know, the removal of Netanyahu, which the ties were really bad between the two leaders, but it actually started earlier. It started in December 2020, the Turkey outreach. Uh, we should say that also there are two other things that um, trade between Israel and Turkey has always been uh, active. And actually last year, it's been in 2021, it was 35% increase compared to 2020. Hmm. Interesting. Yes. So um, there, there was always trade and actually with supply chain issues and um, uh, uh, constraints about importing from China, uh, Israel has identified Turkey as a potential for manufacturing and other sources of goods that um, it, it could buy from uh, uh, China is also there are costs involved and, 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 you know, it takes about to, to reach the port of, you know, port in Israel, uh, 10, 10 hours from, from Turkey versus 21 from China. So there are a lot of logistical issues. There's always been intelligence sharing that continued uh, despite the time. So there's always been like, um, under, you know, it's true that there were no, there were downgrades of diplomatic ties and that Herzog is the first Israeli visit to, Israeli leader to visit Turkey uh, for this public visit, I think in 14 or 15 years now. Uh, but there's always been other things. And we should also say that um, even though maybe not the primary goal, there's uh, thinking that getting close to Israel would also help Turkey amend its ties in Washington, hmm. which is a big thing it needs to do because... Uh, uh, Michael probably could talk about it. Maybe he has spoken about it. Um, Turkey's been in the doghouse uh, in Washington. And this is the bigger thing. I'll just say before we go in more into Turkey and Israel, it's really interesting because Turkey is another country with a Russian border, with lots of interests vis-a-vis -vis Russia, um, uh, with, and is one that is also taking... Um, a, a, trying to take a, a, a mediating role between uh, Ukraine and Russia. Um, and Anatolia, I think it's going to be tomorrow that the foreign ministers of Russia and Ukraine are going to meet uh, ahead of the Anatolia Foreign Policy Summit. It's a new form that Turkey is trying to um, to uh, turn into an, a prominent uh, uh, foreign policy uh, summit. Um, mm -hmm. But Turkey, unlike Israel, has been arming the Ukrainians is a NATO member, and it's arming them with uh, drones that everyone uh, is really praising their performance. Um, and, you know, someone has to fly these drones. So I'm not saying there are Turkish uh, troops on Ukrainian soil, but there's training involved. There's other things. So Turkey has has been like in this delegate balance, but cl clearly they chose a position, even though you would argue they have not less to lose than Israel. Uh, given their ties and dependence with Russia. And now Michael's going to tell me that uh, Turkey is in the Russian orbit and stuff, but I think that's an interesting <laughs> uh, dynamic if you compare 
Israel and Turkey on on this war, or their position on this war. Yeah, let me let me let me push back a, a little bit. I'm not I'm not sure that Turkey has chosen the uh, the dro- the Turkish drones were sold to Ukraine not during the fighting; they were sold before the fighting, and that's partially because the Turkish drone industry is one of the few bright spots in the Turkish economy, and so they've been willing to sell them to anybody who will take them. Um, you know, we'll see if Turkey decides to resupply Ukraine with drones in the midst of this. If they do, I will be uh, very surprised, given how far Turkey has gone over toward Russia in the last half decade and decade. And Turkey is far more dependent on Russia than Israel is in pretty much every single way. Um, you know, they've gone, a, they've gone a lot further in terms of buying Turkish weapons. They've been willing to risk this ongoing crisis with the United States and NATO and the European Union over their purchase of the Turkish S-400 anti-aircraft system. They get over 50% of their energy from Russia. Um, They've historically always been terrified of the Russians. So, uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I don't look at what's going on and say, oh, Turkey has made its choice in a way that Israel has not. Uh, I think that Turkey is trying to thread the line and um, in some ways, Turkey should be less willing to, to sort of thread the needle or toe the line, as, I'm, as I mixed my metaphors mm-hmm. a second ago. Turkey should be you know, less willing to thread the needle, given that it's in NATO and has this ultimate security guarantee. Uh, and yet, when push comes to shove, I think five years from now, 10 years from now, Turkey is going to be just as much in the Russian orbit as, as it is today. But Michael, I think you're right that the, the drones were not like an active decision that they made now, but I just returned from Ankara uh, last night uh, from a dialogue with Turkish officials and experts. And it was really interesting that they see this, um, the use of Ukrainians, the, the, the praised use of uh, Turkish drones by Ukraine as something that if they're giving credit for it by NATO countries and the U.S., um, it seems like an opportunity for them to go back into some sort of, or at least get out of the Russian orbit in a little bit. So I think what's going to happen in the long run depends um, both on Turkey's actions, but it also depends on what happens with the U.S. and other NATO countries, how they um, how they behave now on Turkey. Um, so, for instance, you know. It's interesting also, this is like, it's such a different mentality, right? I heard from Turkish analysts is like, why isn't uh, Biden calling Erdogan to praise him for um, trying to mediate? Um, And I said, you know, I'm pretty sure that Israel was the one that picked up the phone to the White House to ask for permission and to notify, not permission, but to notify them and get their blessing for this mediation attempt. It's not like you don't, you got, you don't get these independent phone calls from the White House. So Turkey would, Turkey would have to initiate and get it. But I think it's, 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 we are in a moment in time where if there was ever an opportunity to try to stop Turkey from sliding more and more into the Russian orbit, this could be the time. Uh, what Turkey eventually does and what the West and NATO and the U.S. Uh, do will, will determine with this, whether this happens or not. And what I'd say in response is that for years now, Turkey has had a completely unrealistic sense of what it can get away with and what it has to do 
to mend ties with the West. You know, for years, there has been a very unambiguous, clear as day message coming from the United States that said to the Turks, listen, if you go forward with S-400 purchases, you are going to be kicked out of the F-35 program. You're going to be under U.S. sanctions. You're going to have a difficult time with the NATO. And for years, the Turks insisted that none of this was the case, that uh, they could purchase S-400s and it wouldn't be a problem. And, you know, everybody should should calm down. You know, none, none, of, none of those warnings should be taken seriously. And they went ahead and they purchased them. And um, all these things came to pass. And so I haven't seen any evidence to demonstrate to me that the Turks have a more realistic sense of what they can do and what they need to do to, to mend ties. I mean, listen, Erdogan's been in power now for 20 years. Um, the guy doesn't really change. We, we, we know what he's about. And ultimately, um, he tends to, tends to move in, in the same direction. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll also note that he's got an election to worry about a year from now. Whenever he has an election, his most potent tactic has been uh, very inflammatory anti-Western rhetoric, rhetoric playing on Turkish nationalist sentiment. And that fundamental situation hasn't changed either. So listen, I, I would I would much prefer to see Turkey be squarely in the Western orbit than in the Russian orbit. I'm just not sure that it really does depend on what the United States and the West do. I think that it first requires real Turkish concessions and recognition that they can't continue to play both sides without consequences. And, you know, it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to act like it. And um, we'll, we'll see what Turkey actually does. What I wanted to ask both of you, uh, and it ties into what you just said, Michael, you know, does, does Erdogan's uh, implacability and, um, you know, putting a nice face publicly, but continuing to do all the same things apply to now the the attempt to mend ties with Israel. In other words, are you are you optimistic or pessimistic that this Herzog trip will actually succeed? Uh, and then I'll ask the same question to Shira after you give your answer. I think that it has a, a decent chance of succeeding, certainly in the short term, if for no other reason than economics. You know, Shira pointed out the way in which trade uh, between Turkey and Israel is up. Um, for over a decade now, Turkish Airlines has been uh, the carrier with the most flights in and out of Ben-Gurion after El Al. Erdogan also is really hoping, although I, I think this is a pipe dream, uh, is really hoping that the effective end of the Israeli uh, Cypriot Greek pipeline carrying natural gas from Israel to Europe uh, can be replaced with an Israeli-Turkish pipeline. Uh, as I said, I think the chances of that are slim to none, but he certainly is going to explore it. And uh, I, I think he, he sees Israel as a real potential economic lifeline for him. And so, so long as that's the case, and so long as the Turkish economy is in such dire straits, and so long as the lira continues to plummet, um, you know, that's, that's not going to change. And I, I think it's definitely in Erdogan's short-term interests to make nice with Israel and try to do whatever he can on the economy, you know, particularly ahead of the 2023 election. Yeah. But long-term you're, you're a bit pessimistic. It will hold. Long-term I'm pessimistic because again, Erdogan is a very nationalist politician. 
And much of his nationalism also stems from his defense of the Palestinians and the Palestinian people. And in particular, his effort, and this isn't just about Israel, it's in some ways more about Saudi Arabia, his effort to sort of uh, take ownership of Jerusalem and Al-Aqsa Mosque, you know, recognizing that Mecca and Medina to the Saudis. And so if he wants to really assert the Turkish role as, as a, a, Muslim, a Muslim leader, it's going to be over Jerusalem. And I don't think any of that is going to go away in the long term. And I think that every time you've seen Israeli fighting uh, in Gaza, um, Erdogan loses it um, and it causes real tensions. And uh, to the extent that there's quiet in Gaza, I think that that goes a long way in helping the Israeli-Turkish relationship improve. But in a lot of ways, Erdogan just can't help himself. And um, a lot of the success of this will be tied to what happens on the Palestinian front. Shira? So, you know, I'm not a scholar of Erdogan, although I did research on, on you know, Israel-Turkey back, back at Rand and for the U.S. Army. And, and I agree a lot of it. Israeli-Turkish ties have always been uh, linked, pegged to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There's no reason that would change. But there are a few things that I think we should talk about. <laughs> Um, first of all, you say, will those, uh, will this attempt succeed? So how do we measure success? Will they restore ambassadors? Maybe, but is this success? What do we want to see? Do we want Istanbul to become another destination for Israeli tourists like Dubai is? Maybe it's closer, it's cheaper. You know, Turkish Lira is really low. It's really nice. It's a beautiful city. Uh, that, that would be possible. Changing the atmosphere could it turn into, could trade, uh, improve and that would, help also alleviate the cost of living, you know, in Israel, Tel Aviv, most expensive city in the world. Um, but are we talking about more strategic cooperation between the countries? And and there, we don't know. I think what Michael said is, is important. It goes, it, it has to do with broader Turkey's sense uh, in the region. Uh, with Saudi, clearly it's difficult over Jerusalem, but also with the Khashoggi uh, murder. With Egypt, I mean, frankly, I don't think Erdogan can stomach the fact that Assisi is the president. He's the you know, Muslim Brotherhood uh, regime was overthrown with a coup, and he's just like... So So there there, there are issues with, with Erdogan and uh, uh, his party and his rule. But, you know, uh, he's concerned about elections. He's turned, concerned about... Um, the economic front and ties, better ties in the region and better ties with uh, Israel, but also better ties with America is something that he needs. What I have been thinking about, and, and you know, I, I don't know that this is actually positive, that it's actually possible, but we know that um, despite Turkish rhetoric around Gaza, in practice, they actually do very little on the tangible front to support Gaza's population. Um because they don't have money, because they have priorities elsewhere, but they actually do very little. Um, and the center of activity of uh, Turkey meddling has been in East Jerusalem. What con that's what concerns Israel. So Israel basically comes to Turkey now with three demands, and they're saying, you know, we want to see more transparency in your activity in East Jerusalem. We want uh, less vocal criticism of Israel, uh, which with Netanyahu you know, off the stage, it's easier for Erdogan to do, apparently. And apparently, that's what I got the report yesterday. I don't speak Turkish, but, you know, that also on TV, they toned down the criticism. Um, and also, um, no, stop enabling this, the, the Hamas uh, military wing logistical and planning of military activities from 
uh, Turkey's uh, territory, which also uh, I, I don't believe this uh, visit would have taken place if they didn't show uh, actual tangible progress on this. So there are sp specific things, but, you know, there's where it goes. These tensions are going to come again. There's going to be another fighting in Gaza. There's going to be Jerusalem. Maybe we can turn these these potential crises into opportunities. Uh, we spoke about it elsewhere. We can, you know, if we have time, we can segue into what we heard when you were here also in Israel. But we know aid to the Palestinians is it the decline. The international community is really not giving uh, support for projects. Maybe it's an opportunity where Israel is panicking now about what will happen in Gaza. Maybe it's an opportunity to actually enable uh, a Turkish-led humanitarian project in Gaza. Maybe Israel should be the champion of this. Maybe the two sides can work on something tangible in Gaza. It's not going to prevent, I know, when uh, Erdogan calling Israel uh, uh, child killers and, and that in the future, in the future war, but it opens an opportunity we haven't seen before. Instead of being concerned about Turkey doing something in Gaza, maybe open the door for it. That could come from the Israeli side. And secondly, you know, Passover is coming, but it's not just Passover. It's Passover and Ramadan and Easter, and everyone is panicking of what can happen in Jerusalem at that time. Is an Israeli mm -hmm. politician going to go to Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif? And we know instead of Erdogan imploding over this, maybe um, the two presidents or, some, or the Turkish president can uh, issue a statement calling for calm in Jerusalem. Can you imagine? That would be a total reverse of <laughs> the normal state of affairs. Of his past behavior, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this could happen, but I know at least my sense, and again, speaking with lots of Tur Tur Turkish officials and experts, they are looking for ways to sort of like make it succeed this time. Um, okay. Hopefully. So on that optimistic note, let's segue to our third and final topic, which is the Palestinian arena. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, Michael, as well as our CEO, David Halperin, uh, were here two weeks ago for an IPF mini delegation, uh, meetings all over the place, Ramallah, the West Bank, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv. Um, so I want to start with Michael to get uh, the big takeaways in his mind from from his visit back here to Israel and Palestine. Uh, except, I guess, you know, it's probably nice to be traveling internationally again, Michael, and it's nice <laughs> to be uh, take going for runs on the Tel Aviv boardwalk again. Uh, but what else can you tell us about your main takeaways from your trip here? Yes, aside aside from the, the glorious runs on the Tel Aviv boardwalk and uh, all, the, all the food that I missed, um, you know, the, the, there are a bunch, but I'll, I'll focus on the one that, that really stands out, which is there's lots of concern, I think, in Israel and certainly in the United States about the collapse of the Palestinian Authority. You know, that's what's behind these notions of strengthening the PA or, or shrinking the conflict, um, and particularly among Democrats in Washington, you know, concern about uh, what will happen if the PA collapses. And... What really has struck me, struck me during our meetings, but you know, has struck me even more in thinking about them since, there is such a conviction among Palestinian officials that Israel is just not going to allow the PA to collapse. That when push comes to shove, whatever the financial problems are, Israel will come in and, and, and bail out the PA or, or find a workaround. Um, that if Hamas presence in the West Bank 
really becomes more of a problem, the Israelis are going to are going to come in and, and and do what they have to do, and um, certainly Palestinian frustration with all sorts of things the Israelis are doing, but really this this deep conviction that Israel is is only going to let things go so far, and it's created this unbelievable dependency, I think. And what that means, at least for me, is that when, you know, we talk about strength in the PA, at least within Israel Policy Forum, it's not just about what can you do to make sure the PA doesn't collapse. It's also about what internal reforms the Palestinians can make and should make to improve their own institutions, improve their own government governance, improve their own legitimacy. And I just don't know, given what you hear from Palestinian officials and in terms of how they relate to Israel and that they basically think they can sort of weather anything because Israel is the ultimate backstop. I just don't know how any type of institutional reform is going to get off the ground. You know, even something like prisoner and martyr payments that has been stressed to the Palestinians over and over and over again, that they really have to take care of. Ultimately, they they, they know that Israel isn't going to let the Palestinian economy completely collapse over this issue. You know, we, we've seen all sorts of ways that Israel um, has come up to, to work around it in ways that the U.S. is unwilling to do. Right. So Israel has floated, floated loans to the Palestinian Authority in recent months. Right. Floated loans. Hundreds, hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. And, and come up with ways to get rid of, you know, transaction fees and all sorts of things. Um, and, and, and I'm not I'm not criticizing these actions. I think that from the Israeli perspective, they need the PA to stick around. It would be a disaster if the PA collapsed. But it does have this counter effect where all this talk that, that, that we have about things the Palestinians need to do or else um, and, you know, ideas for Palestinian reform, there's there's almost no incentive for the Palestinians to move on any of these things. And uh, it just it leaves me it leaves me very pessimistic for ordinary Palestinians who themselves want to see real serious reform on their own side. Um I just don't see. I don't see that the incentives, the incentive structure exists for any of it to happen on almost any issue. Right, and there's no incentive, and there's really not a credible threat. Right. Right. Um, and it's it's a big issue. And you know, I wish you know Michael says all this talk about reform on the Palestinians, but I'm I'm actually not hearing all this talk. Right. Um, the international community finally started raising it, but no one is hopeful that they will go about it. And as Michael said, like the PA is turned his turn into his body that doesn't provide services for its citizens. And, you know, I understand Israel's position and it's really important that the PA, I mean, it's important if we think from a state building stance, right? You need an authority that will be able one day, inshallah, maybe ever to transition into a Palestinian state. But of course, Israel doesn't want it to collapse because it's also a very convenient partner for managing the day-to-day lives of Palestinians. And, you know, we're talking about 3 million in the West Bank and a little bit over the 2 million, 2.2 million in Gaza. But at the end of the day, you're talking about loans that Israel's giving and no one really thinks in their right mind that they will ever be paid back. And some ways to you know, turn a blind eye here and find very creative systems for payments to so that the the Palestinian banks don't have to go through a bank audit and deal with uh, cash surpluses and all these things. But at the end of the day, there are 5 million people there. I mean, to do this at the levels that this will be sustainable in the long run, I'm not sure Israel has the power to do this. 
I mean, at the end of the day, if Israel doesn't want to take care of the lives of ordinary Palestinians, you know, there's there's a ceiling to how much Israel can do that. Um, so, and the debt and the deficit, and it, it's so severe that I think it is concerning. Maybe not, you know, a month, two, not in the very the foreseeable future, but it is really, really concerning. Not to mention, you know, we, we, we're running out of time, but um, this, this was the major takeaway that I also got from all these meetings. But, you know, the public support, the Palestinian public supports for the government, and I'm not blaming the Palestinians. It's, it's such a low point that you're like, what can you actually do? What does strengthening the PA? What does strengthening the PA even mean? Um, what tools do you have? What levers do you have? Is Israel, is the international community, what can you do without the Palestinians themselves? And is it, is it going to help? Um, so, right. Sorry. It was not very no, happy no. note, but. No, not too much happy, happy things, uh, except maybe Herzog's visit to Turkey in this podcast. But and Turkish Airlines is a great company. What? <laughs> It is. It is. Uh, my main takeaway kind of meshes with what you both said. Uh, obviously, there's the the Palestinian Authority financial and economic crisis, which is uh, which is severe. Uh, although I don't, I don't think it'll be allowed to be existential. Uh, I could be wrong. I think European money is going to be coming back online very soon, which which should help. Um, also the Israeli paradigm of the new government shrinking the conflict. I think they have made some inroads on the margins, although uh, one of my smaller takeaways was that not enough has been done so far. And the Israeli government is now, what, nine months in office? So coming up, coming up to a year, and I think uh, a lot more had been promised and a lot more can be done on the ground, uh, which hasn't been done yet by the Israelis. Uh, not just economically, but in other areas too, security, access and movement. But my big takeaway, uh, and again, I have to be a bit pessimistic, is uh, is the crisis or the looming crisis at the top of the Palestinian Authority leadership, um, meaning inside the, the ruling Fatah party of President Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, I think for many years now, we've looked at Palestinian politics as this waiting game for when Abbas would exit the stage, either uh, politically or biologically. Uh, he's now 86 years old, and the, the thinking was that once Abbas did, uh, did leave the stage, that the Fatah party would come together, they would pick a successor or a few successors, uh, they would unite, and they could move forward in a new chapter, um, bring in various Fatah officials that that had uh, fallen out of favor with Abbas or had been exiled by Abbas, and uh, and this would allow Fatah to uh, to essentially put its best face forward, and then through that it would have more, I'd say, capacity and unity of purpose in going to elections and beating Hamas, and through that regaining the legitimacy that that Shira rightly pointed out they have none of. That was that was the theory. That was the idea. What we heard from various uh, corners, both in Palestine and Israel, is that this may have been much too much pre-optimistic. Uh, that, in other words, we may be heading to a different scenario, the opposite scenario, where the Fatah party actually moves towards uh, further factionalization, splintering, um, even before Abbas exits the stage that Abbas and, and other uh, loyalists from within the Fatah party are actually going to preempt 
succession and try to essentially manufacture their their own Fatah leadership that will keep them in power even after the old man, as he's come to be known, leaves. Um, and that's a concern. It's a concern on its own terms, I think. Uh, you know, a, a ruling party that uh, that is even more factionalized and keeps power closer in the hands of just a handful of people, I think by definition, um, lacks legitimacy or, or further lacks legitimacy. Uh, and then going further, I think, you know, if the, these steps are taken um, in the coming months, let's say, then we may see a counter-reaction by the losers at the top of the Fatah party. And I'm purposely being vague here because I don't want to, uh, to betray any confidences, but, but I'm concerned. I'm concerned that, uh, that internal Fatah squabbling that we've seen for many years could, uh, could devolve into outright um, fighting. So that was my big takeaway. Yeah, I, I, I share that concern wholeheartedly, Neri. And I'll, I'll say that it was striking to me in years of these types of meetings, you ask uh, PA folks about succession and the standard answer has always been, you know, how, how can you even ask, you know, the, we can absolutely not talk about succession. Abu Mazen is, you know, is the Palestinian leader. And why would we, why would we even talk about this? You know, he's, he's alive and well, and it's disrespectful. And the amount of open talk about succession this time was, was staggering. Um, right. Certainly, you know, I didn't expect it based on, based on years of previous conversations. And I'd say that um, its existence was staggering. And, you know, as you as you allude to, the way in which it was spoken about was staggering. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Really concerning. And no, it doesn't seem like any good options. I will remind everyone, though, that Mahmoud Abbas has very good genes. And his father died at the age of 105, even though he was a heavy smoker also, I think. And he's a heavy smoker, so... We might be having the same conversations for a good number of years now. In for another seventeen years. That's seventeen. <laughs> Is yeah. He, yeah. Okay. I thought he was eighty-six. So eighty-six could have twenty 16. years. You know, could outlive his father. Right. <laughs> I wish everyone a good, happy, healthy, meaningful life. Longevity yes, and yes, health, yes. especially to uh, yes, yes, to the Palestinian yes. president. Um, and also, I, I should say our thoughts and prayers uh, are with the Ukrainian people, um, who uh, the past two weeks have been, uh, I think, like nothing many of us have seen uh, in our lifetimes. So on that note, uh, Michael and Shira, thank you so much for your time and for a really wide-ranging and comprehensive discussion. Thanks, Nari. Thanks, Nari. Okay, that was Michael Coplo and Shira Efron. Many thanks to them, as always, for their generous time and insights. Also, thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>